Well, if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 18 to 20, 18 to 30, rather, this is the passage we're looking at uh, this morning. In World War II, the French Resistance had a a way of getting pilots, RAF pilots, who were shot down over France. They would get them back to England, but they took them uh, by a route known as the Comet Line, uh, took them south through France, over the Pyrenees into Spain, and brought them back to England that way. Uh, Jean Masson was one of the men who had charge of bringing uh, fighter pilots who had been shot down over Belgium, bringing them from Brussels to Paris. He did so uh, successfully and brought uh, different men to Paris to meet with the next leg of their journey. Then on the uh, June 1943, he arranged for uh, as many of the leaders of the Comet Line, uh, the key figures in the Paris network as possible, to meet at a particular train station as he brought the next group of airmen uh, to them to, to be taken on down through France. And there were the people who ran the safe houses, the people who provided passports, the people who uh, were going to accompany them in the next group. And the leader of the whole uh, French network was there as well. And Jean Masson came up to uh, Frédéric de Jong and shook hands enthusiastically enthusiastically with him to make sure that the waiting German police officers knew who Frederick was. They were all arrested. Airy Neve, the, uh, the, the, the British uh, politician, uh, who was an airman at the time, uh, wrote this description of the event. He says they were on the steps outside the police station. They were bracing themselves to meet their ordeal. Uh, and there came Jean Masson. Uh, he stood at the door smiling. Jean! exclaimed uh, one of the, the men eagerly. But Masson spat on the ground in front of them. And then he came closer. Well, you fools! he sneered. And Neve says his face was the most unpleasant any of them had ever seen. It was exultant, repellent in its triumph. He had betrayed them, and he took delight in it. There's, there's something utterly despicable about traitors. We, we don't call our, our children Judas. There's a, a sense of kick to the stomach and a kick to the head. We are left reeling and winded whenever we have been betrayed. Well, it's now Thursday evening. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday morning. And Jesus and the disciples are hidden away in an anonymous room in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. Jesus has given slightly cryptic instructions about how to find where they're going to meet. Perhaps this is to Uh, to prevent the authorities finding him. They observe the Passover meal. Jesus, their master and leader, has washed their feet, uh, taking the role of a lowest servant. And then there's a bit of an interchange with Peter, and Jesus makes this remark. Peter says, well, wash all of me then. If you're going to wash my feet, wash all of me. And Jesus says, well, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. 
and you're clean. And then he makes this cryptic comment, though not every one of you. We know what he means. John, with hindsight, knows what he means. But nobody in the room seemed to grasp what Jesus meant, with the exception of one man. He was a man who had been to the religious authorities on Tuesday evening. He'd had enough. For whatever reason, we don't know, but he'd had enough. The last straw was when uh, Mary of Bethany had poured a year's worth of perfume, a year's worth of value of perfume over Jesus. And Judas said, that could have been sold in the money given to the poor. Today's rate about thirty to 40,000 euro. Well, Judas said that because he was skimming off from the, the money that they, were, that they had been collecting and gathering. The, he was the keeper of the money bag. And clearly there was not going to be anything in this following Jesus for him if that's the way things were going to go. And, and he'd had enough. And he made his way, it would seem, on Tuesday evening, both Matthew and Mark loosely tied to two days before the feast. And he arranged to set up a way of betraying Jesus. And the religious leaders said, but don't do it during the feast. The feast was going to last a week, the Passover, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So he's got about nine days to wait. And they sat on this fact all through Wednesday. Wednesday was a quieter day. Tuesday had been a hectic day. The religious leaders trying to trap Jesus, first the Pharisees and then the Sadducees, trying to trap him with their questions. He had cleared out the table or the temple on the Monday from the money changers and Tuesday was a frenetic day of teaching and them trying to catch him out. And then Wednesday, suddenly it all went calm. Perhaps it's because the religious leaders know they've got their man. Judas will set up a way to deliver Jesus into their hands in eight or nine days' time. Once the feast is over, once the crowds have dispersed, They can get him on his own and there'll not be a riot. Patience. Patience. They've got him. But Judas has to sit tight. He has to bluff it for the next uh, seven, eight, nine days. Does Jesus know? And as they recline at the table, the table would have been a a sort of a U-shaped affair with couches going round it, and rather than sitting at the tables the way we would sit at a meal table, they reclined on couches. And Jesus is at the, the, sense the, 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 the centre table, and in the middle of it, that's where the leader would be, and his, his close friend John uh, is here in the place of, of one of the places of honour, and Judas, it would seem, is to his left in another place of honour. And everything... I'm sure Judas thought must be okay because he's in the place of honour at this table. So far, so good. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's a quote from Psalm 41. And Jesus has left out the line before. The line before is, Even my own familiar friend, someone whom I trusted, 
who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This lifting up of the heel either is to kick or it's to show the sole of the foot, which in the Middle East was a sign of contempt. Jesus says, he who shares my bread. They've just had a meal. And Jesus says, he who shared my bread will lift his heel up against me. Did a cold shiver run down Judas's spine? Was he going to be called out in front of everyone? But before we look at Jesus, I want us to, to, to look first of all at Jesus. Because we see two things about Jesus. We see first of all the sovereignty of Christ in his betrayal. The sovereignty of Christ in his betrayal. One of the things that John is making clear in his gospel, in his, his account, is that Jesus is not some victim caught between the might of the Roman Empire on the one hand and the political scheming of the religious leaders on the other. He's not a victim who's got crushed by these two great forces. He is in control. He said in John 12, I came to this hour. I came to it. He says, in John 10, he said, I lay down my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus is in control at every stage. And here is no exception. Jesus knows all that Judas has thought and planned. He knew it even before Judas did. In John 6, verse 70, Jesus says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, John says, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Jesus knew about Judas all along. He had warned the disciples that he would be betrayed repeatedly. The most recent time was just two days before. Matthew 26 Verse 2, as you know, the Passover is in two days and the Son of Man will be handed over, it's the same word betrayed, to, the, to be crucified. The disciples might have thought that, that maybe it's somebody from outside the group is going to do the betraying, who's going to hand over one of the other many followers, surely not one of them. But now Jesus draws the circle closer. Psalm 41 points it to being someone close, a familiar friend, somebody who has eaten but with him. To eat with, with someone was a sign of friendship and fellowship. And so not only is Jesus saying, I know someone's going to betray me, he's saying, God's word has said for centuries that I am going to be betrayed. We sang it from Psalm 55 earlier. Here it is in Psalm 41. Here is God's sovereignty. Nothing catches God by surprise. Judas may have thought he was deceiving Jesus, but he's only deceiving himself. And in quoting Psalm 41, Jesus then says in verse 19, if you look at verse 19, he says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am He. More literally, it's just that I am. Remember how John uses that, he records Jesus using that phrase often. 
Because Jesus is claiming to be the great I am, the God who when Moses said, who will I say is sending me? He said, tell them I am the forever God, the God who is outside of time, who rules everything. Tell them I am is sending you. And I am is here. Almighty God is here. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you in advance that I'm going to be betrayed by one of you so that you know that I'm in complete control of the situation. It would seem that Judas has the nerve, the brass neck on him to bluff and to try and bluff his way out of it. For Matthew records that each of the disciples says to him, Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. Each one thinking they might do something that accidentally gives the game away. But Judas then looks at Jesus and says, Surely not I, Lord. And as we try and piece together the the jigsaw puzzle of the two accounts, it seems to be at the very moment that Jesus is turning to him and offering him the piece of meat or the piece of bread. And Judas looks him in the eye and says, Surely not I. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Yes, you said it. He's completely in control, Jesus. There's a majesty about it. And throughout this evening as he speaks on, he says over and over again to the disciples, I'm telling you this now before it happens. John 14, 29. John 16, 1. All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. John 16, verse 4. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. John 16, 32. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. I've told you these things. So that you may have peace. I'm telling you this. So that you may know that I am. That I am the great God. The timeless God. For him all time is like a map. And he sees everything spread out. All at once. And even in this bleakest darkest moment. He's sovereign. Now how much does that encourage us? All treachery. Against God's people. Is known by him. All scheming and deceit. All the machinations of politicians and leaders to to bring in their laws against God's laws. Of different groups that are hostile to Christianity to try and obliterate, imprison, persecute Christians. God knows. God knows. It's not catching him unawares. And he has permitted it for the good of his people. How do we know it's for the good of his people? Well, look here. He permits, God the Son permits himself to be betrayed. And from that, he's going to bring the greatest good that the world has ever seen. Sovereignly. A king who's in complete control of every moment. Secondly, still looking at Christ. We see the love of Christ for the betrayer. What a surprise. The love of Christ for the betrayer. He draws the circle even closer in verse 21. He says, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. One of you. One of the twelve who've been there from the start. They had preached for him. They had worked miracles through him. They had seen him up close. They had eaten with him. They're eating with him now. An act of friendship and togetherness. 
And Jesus, we're told in verse 21, says that after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. It's the same word that we had in John 11 about his response to the death of Lazarus. He was deeply agitated, in turmoil. There was an angst about him. In chapter 12, he says, Now my soul is troubled. It's the same word. One writer says, His whole inner self is convulsing. It's churning up at the very thought that one of his close followers is going to betray him. Do you know anything of that sense of betrayal? That kick in the the guts that leaves you reeling. That blow that leaves your senses and your mind spinning. Last year, uh, a preacher that I admired, uh, a man from outside our own denomination, but a man that, that I admired, who preached Christ in a wondrous way, who brought insights to me from Scripture that I had Uh, that just blew me away, was found out to have committed a whole series of adulterous relationships. I couldn't get my head around it. How could that man who preached Christ so well be such a hypocrite? What? What about all this teaching? What about all we learned from him? How could he do such a thing? I didn't sleep properly. For several days. I woke up with it on my mind. Sitting working in my study. And this is running through my head. Even to this day I can't listen to anything. That that I used to enjoy listening to from him. Because it's just such a betrayal. And I only knew him at a distance. What must it be like for his congregation? What must it be like for his wife? And children? That awful, awful sense of betrayal brings us somewhere towards grasping the turmoil that Jesus is experiencing. It would be wrong to think of Jesus as some sort of superman who just strides through this crucifixion narrative, impervious to all the troubles, and takes it in his stride. No, he's troubled. He's troubled. And yet... How does he respond? It's not just anguish, but there's a tenderness and a love. The disciples start to say, surely not I. And we don't, uh, don't think for a moment that they went round the room, each one saying in order, surely not I, Lord. Surely not. This is a whole hubbub of noise. Surely not I, not I. Well, no, it's not me, Lord, is it me? There's this whole racket of noise. And Peter motions across to John. He says, ask him. Ask him who it is. And John, who's right beside Jesus, perhaps leans back as they're reclining on the couch, leans back and looks up into Jesus' face. Or he turns towards them, they're really close, and he says, Lord, who is it? Who is it? And Jesus, most likely in a soft voice, answers and says, it's the one to whom I give this. It's either a piece of bread or a morsel of meat, maybe the last piece on the table. And he reaches for it and he dips it in the dish of spices. And he turns and he hands it to Judas. And it would seem to be in the moment that Judas is looking at Jesus and saying, Surely not I, Lord. And their eyes meet. And Jesus is holding out this morsel of meat or bread. It's the act of a friend. 
it was the, the, the host of the meal, the honoured host, would turn and take the last piece and he would give it to somebody that he wanted to honour. And that's what's happening here. And Judas is saying, Surely not I, Lord. And Jesus says to him, Yes, you have said it. Judas doesn't even seem to flinch. The bread is not simply marking out for John who the traitor is. It's an invitation to the traitor. An appeal, a final appeal. Judas, it doesn't have to be this way. Here, let us be friends. A final statement of love, a final appeal. A gentle prompting towards Judas. He had the honoured seat. And that wasn't enough. His feet had been washed by Jesus. That wasn't enough. And now Jesus holds out to him this, this morsel of meat or bread. You see Jesus here. Against the backdrop of betrayal. And the anguish that stirred up inside him. His offering a moment for Judas to repent. What a tremendously loving Savior we have. What, what tremendous love. What patience he has with sinners again and again. And this morning, if you aren't trusting yet in Jesus Christ, God is reaching out to you with the hand of friendship, offering forgiveness and saying it doesn't have to be this way. We can be friends. You can experience forgiveness. And will you take his forgiveness this morning? No matter what you've done, you can take his forgiveness. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning and sin has been troubling you. Sinful thoughts, sinful actions and habits and words, sinful practices. And your Savior turns to you this morning and holds out to you his hand of forgiveness. Despite how badly we treat him, he offers us his forgiveness and friendship. What a wonderful portrait we have there of Christ in that moment, looking Judas in the eye and holding out to him a sign of friendship. Come be my friend. Don't waste your life, he says. You know, people wonder at how a God of love could send people to hell. Do we not rather see here a God who goes to extreme lengths to rescue people? And do we not see people rejecting the great love that is offered to them? The love of Christ for his betrayer. Then thirdly, let's look at Judas and see the treachery of Christ's betrayer. It's against this background of of love and gentleness and friendship that we read, As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus said to him, What you're about to do, do quickly. He took the bread. But he didn't take Jesus. He wasn't broken by his Savior's love. He wasn't broken as their eyes made contact. The way Peter was when... Jesus looked at Peter after Peter had, with curses, said, I don't know him. I don't know who that man is. I know nothing of him. 
And Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And Peter is broken by that glance and weeps and weeps and weeps. But not Judas. He takes the bread. Judas knows that Jesus, I say, Jesus knows that Judas will betray him. And Judas knows that Jesus knows. And Satan seizes his moment. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that Satan, who has been tempting Judas up to this point, up to this point there was, humanly speaking, an opportunity for Judas to repent. But Judas, instead of turning to Christ, rejects him again and hardens himself to Christ's kindness and love. And that's it. In turning away from Christ... And all he knew about Jesus and that final tender appeal from Christ, that's it. Satan has him. He now sides with Satan. It's a black moment. It's a black moment to know better and to reject Jesus. The Bible speaks about the sin against the Holy Spirit and it's this. It's to know better who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and to willfully reject all that Jesus has done. Here's the awfulness of his treachery. He's aligning himself, not with Christ, but with the great arch enemy. And so the challenge comes to each of us. Which side are we on? Which side are you on? We have a powerful enemy, one who seeks to destroy us. J.C. Ryle says, He who allows Satan to sow a crop of wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits. Oh, we need to take care. If you've come to Christ and put your trust in Christ, take care. For Satan would seek to ruin you. If you haven't come to Christ, take care that you don't keep rejecting Christ. For then the day will come when it will be too late. We see Jesus again exercising his sovereignty. Judas is meant to betray Jesus in a week's time. Jesus says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Jesus says, I will die at the Passover. Not a week later. I will die here where the lamb was being sacrificed to remind the people that God passed over their sins and God forgave their sins and God rescued them from each. I will die today in the next 24 hours. What you're about to do, do it quickly. This Jesus is still in control. And although we've read about Judas as that he's the one doomed to destruction, Jesus says that in John 17. And although we read how Satan entered into his heart, and although we know that God is going to use this to bring salvation, that does not excuse Judas in any way. God's Word teaches that God is fully sovereign. God's Word teaches that man is fully responsible. It doesn't tell us how those two truths mesh together like two drive shafts coming into a casing and coming out of it, there's the action and we, they're turning in opposite ways and how do they mesh together as they, they come in? We can't see the gears inside. But God is fully sovereign and man is fully responsible and Judas is wicked in what he does. 
And likewise, we are responsible and we will be held accountable by God for all we do. Here is a supreme act of treachery. How cautious and careful it should make us. There could be a traitor in any church. It could even be an office bearer, like Judas was. It could even be a preacher. How prayerful we should be. The sad history of Judas should make us cautious and humble. We should say with the disciples, surely not I. Surely not I. We should search our hearts to see that we are not pretending. That we are not going through the motions of playing at being a Christian. Alexander White was a great Scottish preacher. And he preached up the awfulness of sin. He was always aware of his own sin more than the sins of others. And an evangelist once came to Edinburgh and he was, he was criticizing the preachers of Edinburgh. And a friend of White's had heard this. And he came to, to Alexander White one night and he said, The evangelist said that Dr. Wilson was not a converted man. White jumped up out of his chair. He said, The scoundrel! The scoundrel! Dr. Wilson, not a converted man? He's saying, That's ridiculous. And then his friend said, that the evangelist had also said that Dr. White was not a converted man. At that, White stopped and sat down and put his face in his hands and was silent. And then he said to his friend, Leave. Leave me, I must examine my heart. He wondered would there be any truth in the claim that he wasn't converted. That should be the effect that this story of Judas has on us. We should soberly examine our own hearts before God. Let me say three things briefly in closing. When we sin, we are not necessarily traitors. Satan will accuse us that way. Remember Peter denied Jesus. But he wasn't a traitor. Is your heart like Peter's? Is it still open to God, grieving over your sin? If it is, then you're not a Judas. You're a Peter. And it's much better to be a Peter than a Judas. Let your tears take you to Christ and you will find his forgiveness and restoration. Secondly, you don't have to be a Judas to be lost. Judas won't be alone in hell. Many people who were much kinder than Judas, much more honest, who honored their friendships will be in hell. Because when it came to it, they didn't side with Christ. They rejected Christ. And thirdly, let's fix our eyes on Christ, both on his great sovereignty. Does that not encourage us? Nothing catches him unawares. And let's fix our eyes on his great love. Because as he extended that hand of friendship to Judas, he extends that hand of forgiveness to his people this morning and to you this morning.
whether you come as one of his people who failed him or come as one who needs to come to him for forgiveness for the first time. And with him, the psalm tells us, there is plenteous redemption. Fix your eyes on his sovereignty and on his love. If you're able, uh, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, how we are humbled and made solemn this morning as we read of Judas. And we search our own hearts to make sure that we are not playing a game before you. And O Lord God, we pray that you would help us to root out the weeds of sin before they grow and take take root in our lives and, and cause great damage and great harm. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a Savior who is sovereign over all things and that even wickedness and treachery does not catch him unawares. And the the wickedness of this world and the, the plotting and the scheming and the machinations of people do not take him by surprise, but that he is still able to work all things for the good of his people. And Father, we pray this morning, we praise you for Christ and for his great love and his willingness to forgive even though we have offended him and hurt him greatly, we praise you for his gentle, tender, loving kindnesses extended in forgiveness to each of us. We pray that we would take hold of them and worship him for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.